Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 21. I'll read all of Judges 21. Let us go to God again, humbly in prayer. Our God, we do thank you for the book of Judges. It is a hard word, 21 chapters of hard word. And yet, there is a word of grace. 21 chapters of God's grace. And we pray, O oh God, that we would see that, that you, that you would open our eyes to see that through this final chapter in this book. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. Judges 21. Hear now the word of God. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them 
else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives. According to the number from the dancers whom they, had, whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I doubt you are keeping tabs on the commentaries that were written in the Reformation and post-Reformation period on this book of Judges, but let me assure you that there are not many commentaries written during those periods on this book, at least commentaries that we have. And perhaps there is a scarcity of these commentaries because of the work of Richard Rogers, who was a pastor in the mid-16th century. He pastored in Wethersfield in Essex, England, from 1577 to his death in 1618, just one year before the Synod of Dort. He published his book, A Commentary Upon the Whole Book of Judges, in 1615. Again, just three years before his death. This commentary was based on all the sermons that he had preached over the years on this great book. Now, if you thought that my 28 sermons were a lot, perhaps you did, you should know that this man delivered 103 sermons on the book of Judges. And if you asked him if he had plumbed the depths of the glory and grace of God, he would probably say, no, there's so much there. I could have probably preached another 103. And once his book of sermons was published, Rogers sent a copy to the one to whom he dedicated this book, to Edward Coke, Lord Chief Justice of England. He dedicated this book to the civil magistrate. Rogers wanted Coke to have this commentary because, as he says, because as the principal judge in our English Israel, perhaps Coke would rule justly for God, for the gospel, for our common peace, amid common profaneness and lewd custom. Rogers saw the immediate relevance of the book of Judges for such a time as his. Likewise, I have labored to demonstrate, not as long, not as many sermons as Rogers, but I've tried to demonstrate the theological truths and the practical applications of this book for our present cultural moment as individuals, as a church, as Cross Creek Presbyterian Church, to help the church in the world as well. We finished the sermon series with a reminder that God's people can be a stubborn people. Our sin, when it is exposed to ourselves and when it is exposed to the world, is enough, or at least it ought to be enough, to make us sorrow or to cause us to shudder even. We can be a stubborn people. You know this because you are people. I know this because I am a person, a sinner. We are stubborn. At the same time, our God is our steadfast Lord, who time and again 
shows us his love. Surely we need regular reminders of our sin. Surely we need calls to greater obedience. And most assuredly, these regular reminders, these frequent calls must be seen, always seen by the light of God's grace, in the light of God's grace. Despite our horrifying sin and our imperfect obedience, the Lord preserves us, his people. That's the point of the sermon this morning. Now, I don't think we can say that the period of the judges was the worst of times in the redemptive history of Israel. However, as we recall the past horrors, say in chapters 19 and 20, and the new horrors in chapter 21, we seek very clearly that the time was rough. And remember, these chapters were actually predating the first judge. And it's the author's way of saying, it really didn't get much better when the judges came on the scene. There was reprieve, there was grace, there was patience, but as they had begun, so they had ended. They needed help. You recall in chapters 19 and 20, the background of this chapter. In chapter 19, the, the Levite's concubine was violated by those men of Gibeah. And then she was divided up by the Levite himself. And her body was put in 12 pieces and published to all of Israel that all of Israel would consider, would take counsel, and would speak that they would not let this sin go unchecked. And in chapter 20, Israel gave Benjamin, the tribe, the chance to give up these worthless men of Gibeah. The plea to them was, be men of justice. Purge the evil from your midst. Hand them over. At this, you recall, they refused to do. And instead chose to go to war with Israel. The more numerous and Israel won that war on the third day. And so we saw that Benjamin lost on that third day, on that sad but just day, Benjamin lost 95% of his army. And now only 600 Benjaminite men remain. Gibeah's crime was awful. It was an abomination. It was shameful. It was unnatural. It was the stuff of Romans 1. And likewise, Benjamin's defense of its own, its circling the wagons, was also without warrant. However, now there is a new problem. It's a problem for Israel. Israel has painted itself into a corner. Through their fierce pursuit of every last Benjaminite man, only 600 men are left. Now, that wouldn't be a problem, except for the renewed compassion that Israel now has for this tribe, Benjamin. They wanted Benjamin to learn a lesson, but they still wanted there to be a Benjamin when it was all said and done. And to further complicate this matter, Israel vowed never to give their daughters to this tribe again. They do not want to be unequally yoked to this tribe ever again. And so this is where sin gets played out through their actions. They are sinning against others, and they are sinning against God. The answer to Israel's problem, apparently, was to pile on the bodies. They remember that Jabesh-Gilead, 20 miles away, did not make the same vow that they had made. Acquiring wives for these Benjaminite men means that some people will just have to go. Some people will just have to be collateral damage. They'll just have to 
die in order to correct this problem. And so 12,000 of the bravest men, bravest men, quotes there, they come up against Jabesh Gilead and they strike them down. They didn't come to Jabesh Gilead and share their predicament and ask for the wives. They didn't say, hey, we we made this vow, shouldn't have made it, Uh, we're in a predicament, will you help us out? Will you willingly give us some women who haven't been married, that we might restock Benjamin. We don't have that going on here. They struck them down. And not just the males, but the women who have known a man. And not just them, but also we see the little ones, the dear ones. And they had to leave only the virgins. But even this effort proved insufficient. Israel proclaimed peace to Benjamin. And then they gave them these 400 women. But 400 wives are not enough for 600 men. And so they needed 200 more. So the problem continues. And so to solve this new problem, Israel and Benjamin now joined forces to get some more. They must be thanking their providential stars because there just happens to be a feast in Shiloh. And the Benjaminites will go to the festival, but they will hide. They will lie in ambush, just like one would do in a war. And as the young ladies are dancing the day away, dancing the night away in celebration to God, let's not forget that, but as these young ladies are dancing, celebrating to God, worshiping God, the Benjaminites will snatch the ladies one by one until in this sick game of Pokemon, they catch them all. Oh, oh, but let's not worry, they reason, because we already have a plan when these uh, girls' brothers and fathers are going to object, for surely they they will object. If they're real men, they're going to object to the theft of their sister or theft of their daughter. So what we'll say is, "Just, just be glad that we didn't kill you. We could have killed you, but we didn't. Just be thankful for that. But also, you guys don't need to worry about breaking your vow because you didn't give your daughters to Benjamin. They were taken from you. And so this whole plan, interestingly, seemed to work. The brothers and the fathers returned home. No battle. All is quiet on the Western Front. Just not the heavenly one. Not only do Israel and Benjamin sin against others, they sin against God. For all sin ultimately is against God. Israel didn't need to take that vow not to give their daughters in marriage to Benjamin. They didn't have to take that. It was not a divinely mandated vow. It was a vow of their own doing. And they had bound their own consciences before God and men, saying, we will fulfill this vow to the last T. Moreover, Israel did to Jabesh Gilead what they have been commanded to do against the Canaanites, not against the Israelites. They devoted to destruction all. That was the express command given by God to the Israelites when they came in to dispossess the Canaanites of the land and to take the promised land. But here, they act this way against their own. They strike down the women and the little ones. And finally, they sin against God by snatching these virgins from family in Shiloh. 
This is a hard story. Through this story, we see sin's apparent godliness, but ultimately, it's costliness. That's the application here we see in this section. All sin seems rational and godly for the time that one is committing it. Israel had made an oath, which they had viewed as a godly oath. You can, you can hear them reasoning. After all, doesn't the Bible tell us not to be unequally yoked with others? We've, we've gone a step further. Not only will we refuse to be unequally yoked, but we will bind ourselves by that oath. It sounds very similar to the Pharisees much later on, as they would fence the, the law-keeping. So they would make it harder for themselves to break the law by adding traditions of men, by becoming legalists. And plus, the people of Jabesh Gilead really did deserve to die, they reasoned. Why? Because they never helped them out. In a time of war, they were on the sidelines. This makes you think of that initial temptation in the garden. Satan says to Adam and Eve, essentially, God doesn't want you to, to be like him. He doesn't, want you to, uh, he doesn't want you to eat that tree because he knows that when you eat of that tree, you will be like him. He doesn't want that. You can also imagine Adam and Eve's sinful reasoning as well. Well, I love God. I want to be like him. Therefore, I must eat of this tree. Oh, dear ones, just because we have found a way around our problem does not mean we have been obedient in our decision-making and our problem-solving. It all just goes to show us how self-sighted we really can be, how sinister the heart can be. Sin seems rational, it seems godly, but it is truly quite costly. We see this with the trajectory of Benjamin, what we all deserve. We see that their fate is actually our fate. What they deserve is what we deserve. Benjamin, this tribal son of God's right hand, deserves to be cut off the body of Israel. That's what they deserve. They had no sense of justice. They were defending their own. They were covering for the sin. They were wrong. They deserve to be cut off entirely. Likewise, through our sin in Adam, we deserve to be forever cut off from the second Adam. We do not deserve Jesus. And the moment you think you do is the moment you've entered into a sinful kind of legalism. All legalism is sinful. But a kind of works righteousness. Yes, I deserve to, to have Jesus. I deserve to have grace. I deserve to have forgiveness. I deserve to have mercy. I deserve to have his patience. I deserve to have all the fruit of the Spirit. Because of, just look at who I am. Look what I've done. Or look what I've not done. Look who I'm associated with. And on and on. But no, we all, dear ones, deserve to be forever cut off from the second Adam. Any of our sins, from the greatest to the least of infractions, deserves eternal separation because it is offense against the eternal and holy Lord God Almighty. The wages of sin is death. We are sinners, therefore we deserve death. 
It's not a new message. We see this over and over again, that we deserve to be cut off from God. Sin is costly. But grace, then, also is costly. If there is to be a remedy for the the greatness of sin, that remedy must be greater than the problem. So the grace must fit, even exceed sin. The penalty must fit the wrath. If grace is to hold any water, it must bear the weight of the flood of wrath due us. We are not cut off. Praise be to God. We are not cut off because the true son of the Father's right hand was cut off for us. And this costly grace doesn't minimize our view of sin. It instead enhances our view of sin. We have a greater appreciation that we are sinners, which then means we have a greater hatred of our sin. As our experience of grace increases, so does our knowledge of sin. If you do not know saving grace, you really have no idea how sinister your sin is. At the same time, if you know how abominable sin is, then you are knowing grace. Oh, you don't know the sin as, as thoroughly as God, infinite in knowledge, knows it. But you're growing in your knowledge of sin and your hatred for it and your desire to move away from it as far as possible because of grace. Because that's the thing that put Jesus on the cross. And you want to be more like Jesus. Christ died for sin. He mortified sin on the cross. And as we depend upon that grace, we then also mortify sin. Let's return to the text that shows us Israel's obedience, imperfect though it was. We've already seen Israel's sin pile the top sin, but here now we're seeing a bad situation getting worse. There's an oath. Oaths in themselves are not wrong, they're not improper. They can be made, and they can be made well. But here is an unlawful oath that never should have been kept. Instead of coming to their senses, repenting to God for making a rash oath, what do they do? They double down. What do they do? They, they rationalize their wayward words. Remember, Israel says to those in Shiloh, you didn't violate your oath. You didn't give your daughters over to Benjamin. They were taken from you. So just don't argue about it. Just accept it. And so you can keep the oath. You've kept it. David says, they thought that their war oath was solved by their wife oath. One oath solving the the other oath. But what's the right thing? Now, commentators are, are mixed about whether there actually was a clear right thing for them to do. I believe that Israel should have repented of this rash vow, and they never should have kept it to begin with. And as you saw with Jephthah's vow, if the vow is an ungodly vow, it should not be kept. You don't keep ungodly vows. You keep godly vows to your own hurt, Psalm 15, and other passages, but you don't keep ungodly vows. 
God does not commend us when we sin, and we then remain committed, following through with our decision by adding injury of humans to the insult of God's name, as we have here in this text. But as I argued, and yes, you can disagree with me, but Jephthah's vow was a godly vow, giving up his daughter to lifelong tabernacle service, to perpetual virginity. And he and she paid for the consequences of the faithless to the Lord. But these Israelites do not have the godly character of Jephthah, and they never should have kept this vow to begin with. Because keeping this vow would mean the annihilation and utter disappearance of a tribe, one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And that cannot be. And so by application, we see that true obedience is better than disobedience and loophole obedience. It's very clear that to obey is always better than to disobey. We're told in Acts, we must obey God over man. Obedience is better than disobedience. Nobody has to really argue that point. To keep a command of God or to disobey a command of God. Obviously, we want to keep the command of God as we are enabled by the Spirit. Sometimes, like his Israelites, we pile one sin on another. We make a bigger mess. Imagine a, I doubt this has happened in any of your homes, but imagine a parent saying to a child, how did this white wall suddenly have red paint on it? And the guilty child says, hmm, I don't know, Dad. I just don't understand how it got there. Oh, as you keep asking me questions, you know what? I seem to recall it was she. That's right. I didn't want to rat her out, but it was my sister. No, it wasn't me. Whoever it was, it just wasn't me. So you're adding sin to sin. At other times, our sin is covered by loopholes, by subtle reasonings. Can you imagine the Israelites being shown the larger catechism, 142? Of course, they didn't have it at the time, obviously. The Eighth Commandment says it forbids man-stealing. You can imagine them reasoning here, well, it wasn't man-stealing, it was women-stealing. See, we've, we've kept the law. We obeyed the Eighth Commandment. We didn't steal any men. Okay, we took women. You see how the... The sinful heart will just reason sinfully, and it appears logical. That's what we do. We do this all the time. We justify our own ways. Sometimes we do this with the fourth commandment. You know, there's a principle in Scripture that says that you have, if you have an ox in the ditch, and it's, it's in the ditch on the Sabbath, you get the ox out of the ditch. You don't leave the ox there. That's, that's mean to the ox. That's inhumane. And so there's a principle in Scripture. And so we say, well, it was one of those ox in the ditch situations. And it might be. Someone might say, yeah, but didn't you, put the, didn't you push the ox in the ditch? And we say, well, yeah, but that's beside the point. Look, there's an ox in the ditch. I got to do something about it. Okay, fine, get the ox out of the ditch. But, you know, let's be more careful on how we keep the Lord's Day. Again, we, we reason in, in ways that seem right to us. We try to obey through the loopholes. But we forget that God cares. When he, care, when he wants us to obey, he wants us to obey in thought, word, and deed. He wants us to obey with our heart. 
our whole heart. With all that we are, with all that we do, with all that we think, with all that we are moved by. What do we see throughout this whole book? As we finish, we surely see that this is a mess. There's a mess in chapter 21. There's a mess in all these chapters. Judges is a mess. Or rather, the men, women, children in Judges are a mess. Their life is in disarray, isn't it? The Israelites cannot get all their ducks in a row. I imagine they haven't found them all yet. And their behavior is inconsistent. They almost annihilate Benjamin. And then they weep for Benjamin. Ah, I wish we had Benjamin back. Maybe you shouldn't have killed all of them. But at the same time, though they are inconsistent, they were not always guilty of all wrongdoing. True, how Israel dealt with Benjamin was severe. It was almost thorough. Yet, same time, Benjamin chose to yoke himself to Gibeah, which was the new Gomorrah. Remember, they were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Because here's the church acting like Gomorrah. True, Israel's wife oath was a foolish oath, but it still was an oath worth assessing. You can't just throw away oaths like today's trash. God cares about oaths. There's a whole section in our confession of faith that talks about oaths. We would do well to read that. True, Israel's action toward Jabesh Gilead may seem over the top, But for Jabesh-Gilead to refuse to fight with all of Israel against Benjamin could be seen as support for Benjamin, as complicit. But even so, Israel never should have laid a finger on these poor women and little children. So you can see there's some rightness and some wrongness in these actions. It's not so easy to parse out everything, is it? What does all of this show us, then, that that life is complex, that life is a mess, and that we need a judge? We need the judge of all the earth, who, as judge of all the earth, will always do right, without fail. That's what we need. We need a God who is both sovereign and good, one who is in control and who is benevolent, one who has all wisdom and power and knowledge and honor and glory, justice, and patience, and kindness, and mercy, joy. That's the kind of God that we need. This chapter is no exception to the truth that we have seen, that God is good and God is in control. Verse 15 says that the people had compassion on Benjamin because it was the Lord who had made a breach. There was obedience, there was disobedience, there was loophole obedience. There was confusion, there was inconsistency, there was horror, and there was death. There was justice, there was compassion, there was a solution to the problem. But back of all of this, there was God, where he always was, in eternity, and at work in his history. Providence is the unfolding of his history of his sovereign eternal decree. That's what history is. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but there was God, the king, in heaven. 
In those days, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes, but God was doing what is truly right in his pure, perfect eyes. And Israel knew the Lord of Joseph, the Lord of Joseph, who worked all of that wickedness for the good of Israel, for the glory of God's name. Do you see You, dear ones, who are eternally loved by our Lord, do you see God's work of providence and his grace of preservation through this text? There's a work of providence. Jesus tells us in John 5 that that his Father is working. Our Father in heaven is always working. The Son, likewise, is always working. Working always for his glory working always for the good of the church for whom Christ died. Do you see, dear ones, God busy at work in all the details of your life, in all the details of this church's life? If you're honest, the answer is no. I don't see God working out all of these details. No, I don't. I don't put all the pieces together. It's like a million-piece puzzle, and I don't even know where the two of them go. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? I can't make sense of all this. Well, God, who is all wise, doesn't need to make sense of anything. It is perfectly sensible, perfectly reasonable, and perfectly in line with his sovereign good will. There's no deviation from his decree. Maybe you don't see everything. I know I don't have all the answers. But I know who does. And I don't have to have all the answers because I know the one who does. And he is much better than I am. He is far superior in wisdom in, in anything that, be, that can be considered. Our Redeemer has spoken to us his words of comfort. He has shown us time after time his faithfulness to his people. And sometimes, dear ones, It's time to have cancer. Why? The Lord knows. Oh, sure, there's passages in Scripture that help us to understand why God allows the things, why God has decreed the things to happen. But sometimes, it's time to have cancer. Sometimes, it's time to get into a car accident. Sometimes, it's time to get a kidney stone. Sometimes, relational conflicts get out of hand and seem beyond repair. Sometimes, our pride stops us from moving forward in godliness. Sometimes, you do the right thing, but you pay a hefty price for it. Sometimes, it's time to lose your parent. It's time to lose your sibling. It's time to lose your friend. It's time to lose your spouse. It's time to lose your child. Sometimes it's time for Presbytery to get involved in the goings-on of a local church. We may see the what's, the why's, the wherefore's of some of these, or maybe not. Again, I'll confess by ignorance. It may be mysterious to us, 
And perhaps it'll be so until we are called to glory. But the Lord, our judge, our redeemer, our savior, our God knows what he is doing and he does all things well. Do we see how this book ends on a note of grace? Do we see the grace of preservation here? In those days, there was no king in Israel, but there was still in Israel. You read Judges, and you wonder how the people got out alive in that period. You see their sin, you know the, you know the holiness, you know the wrath of God, you know he's uneasily provoked, but you know they keep provoking him, they keep testing him, you know, the, you know their sin. And you say, how did you get out alive? Well, we're not concerned about Benjamin being annihilated, what about all of Israel? How are you still here? The fact of Israel is the grace of God. God promised to preserve his people. Even this tribe of Benjamin, he made that promise in Genesis 49, and he will keep it. The fact of the church is the grace of God. And at the time, at the end of all of this, we rejoice in the words of Revelation 5 that Christ has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we serve such an awesome and gracious God that he doesn't just cause us to exist. He doesn't just say, okay, you, church, you are. You are. You haven't been destroyed. That's not, that would be grace, but that's not all we get. We get every spiritual blessing from God. God doesn't just let us be, he pours his grace upon us. He fills the church with his grace because Christ loves the church, because Christ loves you, every single one of you. He died for you. Davis says, Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than his people's depravity. And so, yeah, we, we look at the lives of the judges and say, how did you even get out of that period alive? They're gone. We read our lives. We look at what we've done. We consider our thoughts. We see how we are motivated. We hear the words that come out of our mouth. We see the emails we have written, the, the things we've said to people or about people, the acts we have committed, the godliness we, we refuse to, to do. We see all of this stuff, and we rightly wonder, how did we get out alive? And the truth is, We weren't alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But we were made alive by the Father, by the life of Christ, by the Holy Spirit. We were made alive. We were given new life. We are new creatures in Christ. Praise be to God. The Spirit indwells us. What a blessing to have the Spirit in us. What a blessing to have the love of Christ What a blessing for Christ's joy to be extended to us. 
his affection. Is it any wonder then that we sing grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin? But where does this grace come from? It comes from Shiloh. We remember that the tabernacle was in Shiloh during these days. It seems like a throwaway comment in chapter 18, verse 31, but it most assuredly is not. This word Shiloh means he who is to come, and it is a reference to the Messiah. The King James has this more clearly than anything else in their version. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. One man summarized God's sovereign and gracious act in all of this chapter that's full of sin. He says that God had used these stolen women from Shiloh, married to these Benjaminites, in order to bring about the Messiah. That Benjamin is now united back to Israel through Shiloh. What a true blessing of salvation for us, that God brought us into the Israel of God through the saving marital union with Shiloh. Or shall we call him Emmanuel? For he who is to come is God with us. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God, you are sovereign, you are majestic, you are holy, holy, holy. We have seen that holiness time and again through this book. And through that holiness and our own actions, we have seen that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And we, are, and we thank you, O God, for this book, that not only did we see our sin through it, we saw the light of your grace. Not only do we see it, but we have experienced it and are experiencing it. And we thank you, O Father, for not leaving us. Despite our horrifying sin, despite our imperfect obedience, you preserve us, your people. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.